0: Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the sixth series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us and we'll explore the future of money, the rise of Pentecostalism, the disappearance of the human mind, the challenges facing journalism in the 21st century, the limits of science, and the relationship between science and religion, as well as the question of where does all the money go? has a good claim to being the fastest growing religious movement, not only of the 20th century, but of all time. The numbers are truly staggering. From nothing, little over a century ago, there are around 600 million Pentecostal Christians in the world today. Indeed, it's estimated that around a quarter of the world's Christians would qualify as Pentecostals. That's up from 6% in 1980, and it's still rising. And it's not just an over-there phenomenon. There's been a remarkable change in the traveller community in the UK over the last 40 years, so that now about one in five travellers are Pentecostals. So what exactly is Pentecostalism? Where does it originate? What do Pentecostals believe? How are they different from other Christians? And why is the movement so successful? Elle Hardy is a journalist and foreign correspondent, and she's travelled across the world for her new book, Beyond Belief, subtitled How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World. Elle, welcome to Reading Our Times.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: The origins of Pentecostalism are, in a sense, both quite specific and quite general. Tell us how it started.
1: Sure. So the origins go... Back to the Bible, uh, so the Book of Acts, which is the fifth book of the New Testament, which describes the Holy Spirit descending on the apostles fifty days after Jesus was was resurrected, and that was traditionally the Jewish holiday of the Feast of Weeks, but. In the Bible, it describes the the Holy Spirit descending on them and giving them the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit that were prophesied. So it's things like healing, um, miracles, and probably what Pentecostals became most famous for, which is the ability to speak in tongues and go out and convert people in foreign lands. A lot of these gifts came in and out of vogue, I suppose, over, over centuries of Christianity. Tongues in particular became something of a heresy. In 19th century America, some of these ideas started being picked up again, particularly within the, the Methodist and the, the holiness traditions in the United States. And this was when Christianity was, was really, I think, defined by its age and where it was happening. The Civil War meant things like there were a lot of itinerant preachers. There were also female preachers that just had to step in. And Pentecostalism really came out of this moment. But where it really took off was in healing. And there was a a man in Kansas called Charles Fox Parham. He was an itinerant Methodist preacher. He could clock about 250 words a minute. And so he was an incredible, an incredibly gifted preacher, but he fell out pretty quickly with the Methodist hierarchy. And he had a real particular interest in healing. He and his young son were repeatedly very sick. And so he created a healing home called Bethel Healing Home in, in Kansas and He also got very interested in this idea of tongues, which was sort of just coming back into vogue at the time. And so he and and some congregation sat up for days praying and trying to bring these gifts of the Holy Spirit upon their congregation. And on the very weirdly auspicious day of New Year's Day 1901, the gifts of the Spirit came upon a member of his congregation, a woman called Agnes Osman. And she began speaking in what they thought was Swedish at the time. And then suddenly it came upon a lot of other people in in the congregation and then finally Parham himself. He then began traveling around the United States and preaching to people about this gift that they felt as though they'd rediscovered. And he wound up in Texas and one of his key students was a man called William J. Seymour. He was a black man. He was the son of freed slaves from Louisiana. And because of Jim Crow laws at the time, he had to take his instruction in the classroom outside. And the father and the son, if you like, or the mentor and protege used to take out to the streets and start preaching and and Parham had preached to the white people and Seymour had preached to the black people. Eventually Seymour took these crazy new ideas up to a church in Los Angeles to an African Methodist church that he was invited to preach at and was pretty promptly locked out of the church for for preaching some pretty crazy stuff. But he he was a very charismatic man. He was a very Jesus-like figure. He was very gentle, inspiring, very different to his mentor. And he gathered a real following. And once again, they all sat around praying and fasting for days and days for the Holy Spirit to descend upon them. And then it happened, and it just exploded from there.
0: There's a number of really fascinating strands within that story. You mentioned about there being women preachers you mentioned about this being a movement that straddled some quite nasty segregation, particularly in the south of the United States. And also I think there's a kind of a class element to this, isn't there? That A lot of these people are poorer or less well-educated. So there is this kind of socially, I, mean, I hesitate to use the word revolutionary, but for want of a better word, socially revolutionary DNA within Pentecostalism right from the beginning, isn't there?
1: Very much so. And so from from Seymour's congregation, he had people of all races and genders sitting side by side. That was always something he was very keen on fostering from the very beginning. The next sort of heir of this movement that I trace is a woman called Amy Semple McPherson, who was sort of the, the proto-televangelist. She was a very successful um, radio station Owner, she was sort of had a had a Salvation Army sage mum who had kind of pushed her to, to the front. But she had this incredible gift for, for crowds and for a waning audience and sort of became a bit of a Hollywood celebrity in her day. But Pentecostalism was always very much a working class phenomenon, and it is today. And, and that's a, a large part of my book is arguing that this is the faith of, of the world's working poor, and that's a huge part of its success. And, and we can obviously go into that more later on. Yes. Um, but from the very beginning and even today, a lot of other evangelicals, and, and I sort of consider Pentecostalism a branch of the evangelical, um, faith. Not all academics agree with me, but, but I think it's just probably easier for lay people to, to sort of understand the movement within that context. Um, even, you know, today, you still sort of see other evangelicals looking a bit down on Pentecostals. You know, it's a bit down home. You see, you saw a lot of influential American preachers from, that were Southern Baptists and things like that sort of looking down on your Paula White Canes, who became Trump's spiritual advisor, who was a Pentecostal, who was from, you know, Mississippi, sort of grew up in a trailer park. And that's always been very much part of the Pentecostal story.
0: Yes. You, you say at one point that one of the great strengths of this form of Christianity is its ability to shapeshift shift. And the book travels from Korea and Brazil and Southern Africa, Nigeria, America, UK. What, if anything, holds the movement together? I mean, do Pentecostals in Korea recognise that they're the same kind of species as Pentecostals in sub-Saharan Africa or in the US? How disparate is it?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, I think what actually is sort of holding it together now is is what we're seeing in, in what's called the New Apostolic Reformation, just sort of a fourth wave that that's coming through of the Pentecostal movement. It's a lot of these global apostolic networks because there is no Pope here. There is no Archbishop of Canterbury. There, there's no hierarchy. And that has been a huge part of Pentecostal's growth, that it has been literally in a lot of places, the most charismatic guy in the village who becomes a preacher. You don't need to be lettered. Uh, you don't need to have gone to all the right schools. You just have to have a following. Um, so, so that makes you get a lot of very compelling preachers who are quite dynamic and who will shift, but who also look and feel like the local culture, who are relatable. And that has certainly been a, been a very big part of, of the Pentecostal story.
0: You mentioned how there are some evangelicals that look down on Pentecostals, and I think it's probably fair to say there are lots and lots and lots of mainstream Christians that that look down on Pentecostals. There's a detail in the book about how John Paul II once called Pentecostal preachers ravenous wolves in I think it was with reference to South America coming coming in and invading the, the Catholic flock. So I think it's fair to say that not all Christians and mainstream denominations have welcomed this remarkable surge of Pentecostalism, have <laughs> they?
1: No. Well, and I mean, the, the Catholic Church has been the ones who have had to innovate in Latin America. The Charismatic Catholic Renewal Movement has really grown up in response to to the Pentecostals, to the ravenous wolves coming in and stealing the Catholic flock. And I've been to some of these churches in, in Guatemala and other places in Latin America, and they are for all intents and purposes, they're Pentecostal. And that's why this movement is often sort of lumped in with the wider Pentecostal charismatic movement because they just look so much like a Pentecostal church. It's basically, to be crude about it, it's Pentecostalism and you can keep your saints and and your Mother (laughs) Mary too. Um, (laughs) And, um, look, I'm sure there are probably some more discernible differences, but they do look much more Pentecostal than they do something coming out of Rome.
0: Yes, Now, I mentioned in my introduction the the, the sheer scale of the numbers and the speed of the rise in Pentecostalism. Do you have much of an idea of where these people are coming from? By which I specifically mean, are they converts to Christianity or are they converts from other bits of Christianity?
1: The great and not so secret of, of converting people is is that you don't convert atheists. Um and you rarely convert from other faiths, although in parts of the Middle East and so and the subcontinent we're seeing that now. But but largely they're converted in Latin America, particularly from, from Catholic faith. And in Brazil this year, it's predicted that Pentecostals will overtake Catholics. And when you think about, you know, 500 years of Catholic tradition in Brazil being overtaken in 40 years of Pentecostal tradition, that's monumental. And that gave rise to people like Bolsonaro. In sub-Saharan Africa, where Pentecostalism is really exploding as well, there it's much more to do with birth rate. Um, So it's it's much more sort of following um, demographic trends. But certainly there's still, you know, in in somewhere like Nigeria, which is, um, you know, I think it'll be the third biggest country in the world. In in a decade or two. You know, a lot of residual kind of Anglicans, um, various other denominations uh, are converting to to Pentecostalism for some of the reasons that we've talked about.
0: Mm. I want to explore the reasons a bit more detail, but I want to pick up a couple of geographically based stories before we get under the bonnet of Pentecostalism, because I think they will surprise a lot of listeners. The story of Korea is very interesting, and particularly how Pyongyang now, in North Korea, was once known as the Jerusalem of the East. I think it'll surprise quite a few people to know how prevalent Pentecostalism is in Korea. Do you have an idea of the numbers there?
1: Don't so know the numbers off the top of my head, and um, unfortunately, we're often waylaid with uh, with definitions in these sorts of things. And and in in Korea, um, what we'd broadly call Pentecostal charismatic. Christianity is often called Presbyterianism, mm-hmm. um, so it can get very confusing. But in South Korea, it is actually quite American in character. Often preached in English, often much more middle class there. It can be difficult to actually get a handle on the numbers, but but it's very obvious once you're there of just how sort of Pentecostalized large parts of South Korea are. I mean, what's really interesting is, is, yeah, that that Pentecostals basically run run the Underground Railroad uh, for defectors out of the north, and they provide a lot of the services from people from the north once they get to somewhere like Seoul. And, you know, it's hugely alienating. A tremendous amount of defectors want to go back, and churches are sort of the only real... Place where you know people can access services sort of beyond a basic pension, and you know some um, some sort of training for for life in the in the modern world. And there's a sort of cultural movement, I suppose you call it, which is called showing your face for North Korean defectors, where they go around to all the mega churches in Seoul, and Seoul is the mega church capital of the world you know, on a Sunday and you can, you know, they'll often have seven services a day. So you can go around to seven different churches and sort of get a stipend. Some people will, you know, give you some clothes. There might be a, a dentist at the congregation who'll do your teeth for free, things like that. So so that really is a big part of, of, of Pentecostalism is, is those material benefits that it can help provide that they just seem to do better than other denominations.
0: That is particularly interesting, the the material benefits, and and there are two ways in which the conversation can go on this. The one is that it's the prosperity gospel, and there's enormous amount to say about that, and the other is what these churches are doing is providing an infrastructure of welfare and social security in places where it's woefully lacking. Now, I guess it's false to say which of those is more accurate, but maybe you could comment on both of them. And Firstly, Bluntly, to what extent is this just the prosperity gospel?
1: So health and wealth is often claimed as the the two big drivers of Pentecostalism. I'd say that local authenticity that we've talked about would be the third and and probably quite equal in some ways. But but health and wealth are huge driving factors. As I mentioned earlier, it's the, the faith of the working poor. Prosperity gospel really only comes out of sort of 60s United States when everything was on the up and it was... God cares how much money's in your wallet at the end of the week, and 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 all that kind of stuff. I mean, prosperity gospel for for people in the developing world can be very much that that really awful, slimy preacher with you know with the soft focus lens and the and the private jets, yeah, and the private jets, impossibly white teeth, where you you know start throwing your money at them, which is called seeding because you you plant a little seed and you get you get a great harvest in return. There certainly is that, but I think that. There's a side of prosperity gospel that has really gone unnoticed and, and it might not necessarily always referred to as prosperity gospel, but it really is these solidarity networks that, that people build within the churches. So you really see it in places like Brazil where a preacher is more like a mentor and he's helping you with, with your life because he understands just, you know, what it's like. And they'll do things like encourage you to to quit your awful job in the factory that you hate and start up your own small street vending business. And then they'll encourage everyone in the church to start buying their, their goods there. And then so people have an immediate sort of uplift in their circumstances when they, they're going to a church, when they're really committed, when they're involved in it. And there's, you know, there's some pretty compelling research that that you do see coming out of places like Brazil that, that people do see a real uplift in their circumstances because of these church solidarity networks when they start going to a Pentecostal church.
0: That's so interesting. As a historian, I was reminded about the way in which Christianity spread through Western Europe after the collapse of the Roman Empire. I mean, theoretically, Western Europe was already Christian then. But during that very tumultuous period, the infrastructure of the states had broken down, and very much the church was the only institution that was keeping going, was keep functioning. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that, you know, sub-Saharan Africa necessarily, or Brazil, is like post-Roman Empire Europe. But there's a Similar dynamic going on there, isn't there? The state isn't providing and the market isn't providing pathways out of poverty and security. And so the church steps in as a kind of infrastructure to do that. Is that a fair comparison?
1: Yeah, that's that's a really good parallel. I hadn't thought about it like that. That's very accurate. I mean, in South Africa, especially, I think you see it more than, more than anywhere. Um, there, there's a real, I sort of write about this generation of millennial showman preachers. And They're the kids that grew up post-94, that they were promised a lot and then – everything's failed around them. Youth unemployment, something like 75%. Wow. And yeah, so no one has any faith in the state. No one has any faith in, you know, international NGOs and things like that coming in because there's always a price for it. And so it's sort of been, well, you've got to stand on your own two feet and we've got to, you know, stand up and be be strong sort of patriotic people or, you know, Zulu people or, or whatever and stand up and lift up our own communities. And, and that's, you know, that's a very powerful message. And once again, people do seem to see, see an uplift when, when they get involved in these church movements.
0: And I was also struck by the line in your book about African churches were often the only legal place to hold mass gatherings, proving pivotal hubs for resistance and organisation during the apartheid years as well. So, you know, that that was a very functioning state, but of course an immensely harmful state. Were Pentecostal churches central to that kind of resistance at the time?
1: Yes, and these once again are um not always called Pentecostal churches, they're sort of African Zionist churches and all sorts of things going on, but there's a very direct line from William J. C. Moore and, and Fox Parham out there and, and very similar in, in some practices, although they're often very syncretic with a lot of traditional African beliefs, which is again why they've been able to flourish and and that decentralized nature of the church has allowed them to, to flourish in, in their own particular ways that, that are locally meaningful. Uh, but, but yeah, during, during the, the apartheid era, it was the only place where rough and different, um, African tribal races were allowed to mix within the, the one church. Um, because mm. they, they never sort of wanted different groups coming together to form a resistance because of, you know, sheer weight of numbers um, yes. to, to attack the apartheid regime. And, and you still see um, just what it means in the lives of many black South Africans on, on a Sunday that it will be, you know, churches often sort of nine till five in these these great sort of open field um, uh, with sort of like airport hangars and tens of thousands of people there. And it's just a day-long spectacular of music. You, c- you can really sense quite traditional dancing and songs, a lot of call and response, everyone dressed up to the nines and a lot of testimony, people getting on stage, sort of, you know, revving you up about what joining the church has done for them. And, um, and you can really see how powerful that must have been then, but also why that tradition has carried on into now.
0: That. Performance element, I hadn't mentioned until now, but it's critical, isn't it? I mean, I was really struck by the number of leading music artists whose music is somehow rooted in Pentecostalism. You mentioned Little Richard, Sister Rosetta, Tammy Winnett, B.B. King, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley. Music is absolutely central to this, and performance, isn't it? The idea of putting on a show for the people...
1: I think that there's a really compelling argument that rock and roll is secular Pentecostalism. When you think about Sister Rosetta Tharp, who's considered the godmother of of rock and roll, who came out of the Church of God in Christ in in Arkansas, and then everyone who, who followed her. And, you know, traditionally everyone knows the Elvis story of sneaking down the road to go to the black Pentecostal church. You know, they played the good music. But even when someone like Tammy Wynette was doing exactly the same thing, a lot of that is in the stagecraft as well. I mentioned earlier Amy Semple McPherson, who was really the the first real showman, showwoman preacher, and she was really renowned for having this uncanny gift of sensing a waning audience, sensing a waning attention span. And, and that's something that, that Pentecostal preachers and, and rock and roll singers all do very similarly you know is that you're sort of losing your audience and suddenly start banging on the ground. Mm. Um, you start clapping your hands, you're getting people up, you're inviting the audience to participate they took on a lot of musical ideas from African slaves of call and response and and things like that and it's very active. I always say to people if to think about the difference of Pentecostalism is, is to think of yeah your, your sort of relationship you have with Elvis or someone. Whereas a lot of more traditional denominations, it's kind of like Simpsons, like Reverend Lovejoy, where you're just kind of being, <laughs> you're being preached at and Homer's asleep in the front row. Yes. Uh, but Pentecostalism has always been very dynamic and had that audience and, and preacher relationship. And you go to some church services and, and the music is constant. I, I went to a snake handling church in Alabama and the music is just, you know, the first opening song goes for an hour. Yeah. And there's, you know, sort of roaring, preaching, lifting snakes and everything. But the whole thing is just this constant really quite ecstatic celebration and performance in which everyone is open to participation.
0: And it's worth highlighting at this point that you're not saying a snake handling church metaphorically there, are you? They <laughs> handle snakes, don't they?
1: They do. They drink poison as well. <laughs> and uh, and they don't take too kindly to ambulances being called, um, which happens a bit. So, yeah, I, I went up to this church in rural Al- Alabama. It's really only practice in, in very um, rural Appalachian parts of, of, of the country, up in sort of the mountains, so Tennessee, bits of Alabama, parts of West Virginia, I think. And often it's some related family groups. I mean, some guys I was speaking to in Alabama, they've got, you know, a cousin's church in Virginia still does it as well and mm. does the snake handling and they'll go up and see them. So I think it is a very small, it's a very, very small subsection and and they're really probably in the holiness tradition. You know, women aren't allowed to cut their hair, people aren't allowed to wear short sleeves. Mm. All, all that sort of thing, but but snake handling is, yeah, it is you know the snake's always been that symbol of um of the devil, and by you know you're picking up and and conquering evil and your fears of evil yeah. by doing it, and um yeah, it's very much a thing I wanted to do it, and I kind of chickened out other women aren't supposed to to snake handle, but I think they were. They were open to letting me do it, but uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a coward. I so.
0: know, uh, I think cowardice <laughs> might be might be the sensible option in that uh, circumstance. I certainly would have taken it. We've talked a bit about Korea and Brazil and Southern Africa and the US and you know, coming, right speaking as I am from a UK context. It's very often the case when you're talking about the growth or the development or the transformation of Christianity, one goes to stories in the rest of the world. But interestingly, there's an entire chapter in your book looking at the growth of Pentecostalism, the remarkable growth of Pentecostalism in the UK and in particular in traveller communities. And actually, you visited the Light and Life Church, which is not far from where I live. This has been a really astonishing growth, hasn't it, over the last two generations in traveller community in the UK and indeed more widely.
1: Yeah, that's my favorite chapter in the book. I don't know if you can just sense. I just, just I really, could actually, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, you, you can, the guys you can just kind of sense. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're pretty fun guys. They, um, so I went to the Light and Life church in Dartford down in Kent. Most of the pastors there, I think there's, there's five of them, you know, self confess either former crooks, you know, spent time in jail or, or were conmen and, and career criminals who, like a large part of the, the gypsy community in the United Kingdom have come to the Pentecostal faith since the eighties. And it actually is something that came over from, from France and from the extraordinary story of one family sort of in, the, in the, the smoldering ashes of World War II who, who came to, to a Pentecostal church and, and it healed a child of theirs who the doctors had, had written off. And it sort of started growing within the French gypsy community and, and they started building stronger connections across Europe particularly I think in the 70s and 80s, and, mm. and they started forging stronger connections with their with their brothers over in the UK in the 80s and they brought over this Pentecostal faith and it just has spread like like wildfire. I mean, the, the most prominent example, Tyson Fury, the, the heavyweight boxer, I still believe that he's a Catholic, but if you listen to him talk about his faith, it's very heavily Pentecostalized. And I know that some of his uncles are preachers within the Light and Life Church, which has branches all over the UK. Yeah. Now, it's been a hugely transformative thing. And, and and once again, as, as I mentioned with the, the idea of testimony in, in South Africa and really sort of amping people up and, and and also showing them your life before and after, that's become a really powerful thing for a lot of people in, in the gypsy community. Especially preachers like the guys down at Dartford. They saw their lives before and then once they converted they see it after. And and it's a you know it's such a clear demarcation in your life that becomes a really powerful thing. And they they do a lot of um, preaching in prisons. They do a lot of um, you know, sort of youth outreach and things like that to, to troubled young kids in their community and stuff like that. And and it's just just become hugely popular. I think there's a stat in my book, and I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it's something like at least a third of, of people who identify as gypsy in the UK have been to a Pentecostal church mm. in the last decade or something like that, which is which is, you know, pretty significant. You know, really significant numbers when you think about how, how much Christianity is, is in the decline in, in Western countries.
0: It, it really is. It's a very, very striking chapter and story and, and stats. And I wonder whether it parallels that earlier part of our conversation about Pentecostalism thriving in those places where the state doesn't function quite as successfully. I'm not suggesting that tribal communities are kind of beyond the state, but they've often been on the periphery of society. And I wonder whether that's one of the reasons why why Pentecostalism has been so kind of successful within, within, within that community.
1: Certainly the guys that I spent time with, you know, street preachers or, or pastors within the church certainly spoke about that as something I think empowering for their community. But but it was also a bit sad, you know, they, they sort of said, oh, as, as we're becoming Christianised, we're becoming more acceptable in modern Britain. And I did find that a, a bit sad because they shouldn't have to... You know, to humanize themselves, have to find religion. They should be. They should just be be humanized by by definition. Um, So I did find that that quite a quite a sad thing. But for them, on the whole, finding faith is really quite a community. Is it is really really remarkable just how many people in the community are, are coming to the faith. And and how meaningful that is for them. And things like the guys at the Dartford Church going out to parts of Moldova and reconnecting with gypsy communities out there. And mm. they really do have it tough and they really do, you know, are very heavily discriminated against in, in parts of Eastern Europe. Yes. And they're going out and helping them build churches and help them rebuild their communities They're starting to reconnect with gypsy language. Um, They said, you know, they realized that they had a lot of slang words that when they went out to Moldova and these guys were speaking this, that they sort of realized the etymology of where a lot of their slang words had come from. And, you know, it's just because you'd heard your uncle saying it when, when you were growing up and you sort of picked up on it. So they're really finding a lot of solidarity across Europe, which is, which is quite a stunning thing.
0: Yeah. You mentioned there the way in which, for some in the traveller community in the UK, Pentecostalism is making them a bit more socially acceptable and a bit more socially formalised. I wonder whether that is happening at all. Genuinely open question, whether that's happening at all with Pentecostalism more generally. And what I mean by that is if you look back 250, 300 years now to Methodism, in the 18th century Methodism is scandalous and it is a shock to the establishment And the term is an insult, primarily. Now, by the time you get to the early mid-Victorian period, Methodism has gone mainstream, and it's respectable. Now, Pentecostalism is 120-odd years old now. Is it becoming respectable?
1: I think culturally it's really becoming respectable. I actually did a piece for the Sunday Times a little while ago about all of the Premier League players who are Pentecostal. And it's really remarkable. I mean, just just even even the English kids, Bukayo Saka comes from a very pious Nigerian family. He's always pointing up to the the skies when he scores. Uh, Marcus Rashford's mum was was quite a fire and brimstone Pentecostal. She's a real kind of classic story. I think she's from a Caribbean background and you're seeing a lot of second and third generation Caribbeans finding faith. But she was also a single mum of I think like five boys. And wow. once again the church becomes that solidarity network if you're working several jobs and you know trying to keep keep your kids a bit in line and off the streets by having youth groups and, and things like that. But I mean you go to the the very scandal plagued Hillsong Church, which plays out in auditoriums in London and you go there and you know i'm sort of the only person over 25 and it's probably majority minority um it's incredibly diverse i'd say in in some cases up to you know 75% um sort of minorities uh, mm. are at these churches so it, i think it's becoming much more culturally acceptable through through a lot of a lot of young people um so yeah i think there's a there's a couple of rappers as well that are into it. Um, but, but yeah, just a, a tremendous amount of, of Premier League players and and a lot of young people, I think, reconnecting with their faith, sorry, with their heritage. You know, you're coming to London from Nigeria, from the Caribbean, from Brazil, maybe you're a student from Africa, and it's sort of a way to still be able to communicate with grandma back home by saying, that yeah. yes, I'm going to church and, and doing all the things that, that you hope for, but also being a kid in a big cosmopolitan city like London. So I think it's really helping people contextualise their lives. One of the other sort of really remarkable things about Pentecostalism, and I think which really contributes to its growth is that it's, it's prominence in big cosmopolitan cities. People are, you know, going to Rio or Los Angeles or London, Lagos and feeling alienated. They're mm. going there for work and this is a place to find community, find connections and find meaning
0: in your life. But what's interesting is that very often when a movement becomes respectable, it often also at the same time becomes less loses its vitality, if you like. Respectability and vitality often kind of tug against one another. And it seems to me that even though Pentecostalism is moving, at least in some areas, towards greater respectability, it isn't losing its vitality. Fair?
1: Yeah. Some of the really transformational people in modern Pentecostalism, so um, John, uh, John Wimber and Peter Wagner in the United States, really got going sort of in the 70s and 80s, they were very aware of, of Weber, of, of saying, you know, that routinization is <laughs> going to be bad for a movement, you know, that if you make it McDonald's, if you make it like a Ford factory line of just giving people this very cookie cutter kind of faith that it's going to have its limits. Mm. And and I think just like, once again, just the decentralized nature of Pentecostalism, you just have to have you just gotta have a flock. And and you can call yourself a preacher and you can preach. And and that's why, you know, we get all sorts of social media preachers and and churches that only do on YouTube and things like that. As long as you're reaching people, that's all that really matters. Yeah. And so, I don't think it's losing its dynamism. You've got people that specialising in in healthcare. You've got people that are you know specialising in in their local you know maybe quite syncretic kind of form of Pentecostalism. You've got people to speaking to all sorts of different needs of worshippers, and they're very network oriented. So they're all still getting together and learning from each other about what works. And there just is a real dynamism to Pentecostalism that is quite explainable, but sometimes it just has an almost mystical quality that just from the beginning Pentecostals have been incredible at picking up new media yeah. much more than any any other yeah. denominations. You know, they picked up radio, they picked up internet just way better before everyone else. And yeah. almost like that sort of culture or DNA of dynamism that's within the movement that, that's always very much a part of its history and, and a part of its future.
0: Yeah. You mentioned a few minutes back a uh, keyword scandal. Now, it'll be very clear from listeners from our conversation that you take a, a very sympathetic and I think quite positive um, attitude to Pentecostalism in the book. But that's never at the expense of hiding the fact there have been some pretty outrageous scandals. You mentioned the Korean mega churches as well that have suffered from them. You mentioned that had been the case with Hillsong. We talked about, you know, some hugely rich pastors with private jets. This is, I guess, an occupational hazard of large, decentered networks like this. But it seems to me two things are really interesting here. One, that there have been so many scandals of this nature with regard to Pentecostalism worldwide. And secondly, that it doesn't seem to have sunk the movement at all. How has Pentecostalism dealt with this?
1: This is certainly one of the the problems, that there is no oversight, there's no restraint, that you are forming apostolic networks and it's, I mean, as we're seeing right now with, with the Hillsong kind of ongoing collapse, that was a, the big celebrity mega church that used to have Justin Bieber and all his NBA stars go to it that, that actually started out of Sydney, Australia, where I'm from. And we're seeing now that the investigations over the former head and founder, Brian Houston, were presided over by mates of his who he was paying honorariums. Too And that sort of stuff, unfortunately, is fairly common, I think. So yeah, there, there is no oversight and often the most charismatic people tend to get to the top because it's not prized about where you went to school or having the right theology degree. And so often those people who who do have that incredible charisma, you know, that that sort of Bill Clinton that make you feel like you're the only person in the room. And I've spent a lot of time with these preachers and they, they often are, you know, just I'm trying to interview someone a, about a scandal and he's, you know, just puts his hand on my arm and says, you know, but how are you going really? And just has that, that incredible magnetism. I mean, it's how these people get get to the top. So
0: yeah.
1: There's no wonder that that there's been a lot of scandal and I think I think the South Korean experience is is quite instructive. I, I've sort of suspected for a while that that we might see some echoes of it in the West. so in South Korea, mega church capital of the world, there's about twenty churches that have at least six thousand people going a week or something like that's the definition. and they had all sorts of you know fathers handing over the churches to their sons. It's often like you see in business, you know the father you know grew up the church you know was this incredibly original charismatic figure hands it over to the son who's a bit of an idiot or just doesn't have his father's skills um, the congregation often didn't you know didn't want it to be handed over there might have been a, yeah. another preacher who they thought was better there's all sorts of financial impropriety there was a lot of sexual assault scandals and so what we've been seeing in South Korea in recent years is particularly younger people is really moving away from mega churches. And doing things like cafe churches, where it's basically almost just a Bible study of getting together with a small group of friends at a cafe on on a Sunday morning and and wanting to get rid of that, that corruption of leadership. So in a way just even more <laughs> decentralized than ever, but 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 just trying to find some sort of purity after experimenting with mega churches. And I am starting to wonder if in the West we've just seen a real slew recently of of um, sex scandals in in evangelical and Pentecostal churches. We've seen the financial scandal of, of Hillsong that's that's just you know still rolling out now of paying preachers like Joyce Mayer from the United States one hundred and thirty thousand dollars to come and preach you know just, just obscene amounts of money yeah. of of all of the holidays that the congregation was picking up the tab and we're talking you know twenty grand a pop for for accommodation and yeah. things like that. We're talking about private jets. And really, just that obscene wealth and, and corruption. So, so I do wonder if we we might see a, a bit of a, a move to something like what what we saw in, in South Korea, or maybe people just just more finding their guy online. Um, you know, we sort of saw that start in the pandemic a bit, and and I think that's what's led to some of some really extreme preachers. We've seen like Greg Locke in Tennessee, who's always burning Harry Potter books and and stuff like that. It used to be you'd go to church, and if you didn't like what they're preaching, you vote with your feet and go to the guy down the road, but. Now you don't have. You can just go home and log on yeah. and find someone that's you know preaching about about guns or maybe about accepting gay people. Whatever you, you can find the the church for you online. And so I think that's another trend we're going to see, which which is probably going to le- lead to some quite sort of niche and and extremist churches that, that we're certainly starting to see more over in the United States.
0: So let's conclude our conversation by looking to the future then. In the first instance, what you've said then seems to suggest we're going to see, a, as it were, an even greater fragmentation of Pentecostalism, which has already and always been a naturally vociferous, quite fragmentary movement. It's going to become more so. Is that right? I'm quite
1: critical of, of people in the market of prophecy, so I try to avoid <laughs> it myself. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, look, if, if I had to guess, that that's what I would say. And and it might devolve into things that are more and more unrecognisable. And, and and people like me might have to contort themselves even further to, to try and group this under, you know, a, a Pentecostal badge. But yeah, I think that we really have seen accelerated by the pandemic f- for certainly is, is less local churches. But but then again, you know, I've seen some some of the churches that left the Hillsong umbrella in the United States, for example, where the church congregation got together and vote, voted to leave and said, we want a local church again. We don't want to be part of this big global brand mm. so yeah I, I think it is hard to predict but but i would say perhaps that that churches might be might have, have had their heyday mm. um but then again, you know they're still convenient. Music's great, production's great. You know, you go in there not knowing a word, and you come out, you know, sort of singing the songs that they're incredibly anthemic. It's sort of like going to see a, a movie trailer of like a, re- a movie that you know is going to be really crappy, but you sort of get, you know, find it compelling with all the music and the the, the sort of lifting, lifting you up to to a certain tension point. And and churches, just Pentecostal mega churches, just had that incredible gift of of working out how to capture people and make them feel really good about their faith. So, I I mean, it could be premature. It's hard to know, but, um, but I certainly think it's a very interesting time in Christianity.
0: So let me then ask one other question about the future, which is less an invitation for you to be a prophet and more for you to comment on what they want. You talk about the Seven Mountain Mandate, which is the objective of capturing seven pillars of society, and that's what a lot of Pentecostal leaders are are focused on. What do you think Pentecostals, and particularly the prominent leaders in the Pentecostal movement themselves, want? How do they see the future?
1: We've certainly seen a, a coming together of, of the radical right in politics of the Trumps and Bolsonaros and even Viktor Orban, Abiy Ahmed in Ethiopia, who have just spent a bit of time out there researching, real coming together of, of, of the Pentecostal movement with those radical rights, those populist uh, politicians. And you're certainly seeing a lot of shared ideas, but also shared style you know, again, that these guys will come out and give, you know, Trump gives these sort of rambling rallies but but can just sense when the audience is waning, you know, makes it fun, makes it exciting, makes news entertaining and so... Yeah, I think we've just seen a, a real coming together with, with those sorts of sensibilities, I suppose. And there's a lot of common ground there. It's, you know, feeling besieged by the secular world around you, you know, you're constantly being told that you need to be feminist, you need to care about the environment, you need to be globalised, um, you need to care about gay rights, those sorts of things. So, so there has been a real coming together, I think, between a lot of a lot of Pentecostal Christians and and this new radical right. And I think that that's something we're probably going to see more of. London, for example, is the most conservative part of the United Kingdom. And that's largely due to its, its migrant population, especially coming from West Africa and, and Latin America, people of faith.
0: We did a research project on that at work, actually, in Religious London. Exactly that, crunching the okay. numbers. Yeah, very, very interesting. Remarkable phenomenon, isn't it? Given the fact that around the world, cities are secular. They're not religious. They're not conservative in that sense.
1: Yeah, look, I might have pinched the numbers from from you guys without <laughs> fine, without realizing <laughs> it. So that's great, but but it is, yeah, it, it's incredibly you know it sort of goes against the grain. I think of, of where most people think of urban life and things like that now, but it's certainly certainly changing. And I guess the the thing that I w- would say is that Pentecostalism is is the faith of the working poor. It's the faith of minorities and migrants. And I think we're really going to see the the demographics perhaps come into line with with politics a bit more in the next couple of decades. And I think that would be Perhaps something that that a lot of more secular, liberal-minded people um, in cities like like myself um, probably hadn't considered so much that there is a real changing undercurrent happening around us that doesn't intuitively make sense to a lot of people but is very much occurring.
0: That's a very fascinating note on which to end. So we get this nexus between a migrant century and Pentecostalism kind of combining with authoritarian rights to react against what has for quite a long time been a kind of a secular, liberal, elite consensus. I mean, I don't want to draw the lines too starkly, but that would be a, quite a, a political shake-up for the 21st century, wouldn't it?
1: Very much so. I mean, there, there's a prominent preacher um, in London, Ubert Angel. He's Zimbabwean originally, and he's been mates with Nigel Farage for ages. Farage appears on stage at his um, at his gigs, and it's the kind of thing that you don't really see but is very much happening.
0: Yeah, the book is called Beyond Belief How Pentecostal Christianity is Taking Over the World El Hardy thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times
1: It's been a pleasure
0: You've been listening to the final episode in the sixth series of Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos I want to express my thanks to all my guests this series Sheila Jasanoff Henry Sanderson, Alan Rusbridger, Ishwar Prasad, Paul Johnson, Marilyn Robinson, El Hardy, and my special guest interviewer Daisy Scalkey. I want to give a particular thanks to my brilliant producer Phil Bodger and Nina Humphreys for her wonderful theme music, and to the team at Theos: Lizzie Harvey, Daniel Taylor, and Elizabeth Oldfield. And I want to thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the series and I hope it's encouraged you to go out and buy and read some of the books we've been talking about. We'll be back for another series soon, but until then, take care.